Good morning. Let's do this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll be picking up in verse 3, and we are covering more than two verses today, so you should be excited. And uh, we're going to try to do it in a timely manner, um, but, you know, not the most important priority that we have, so we'll just see what happens. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, sorry, chapter 1, verse 3. Let's remind ourselves of the context. I'm sure you remember most of it from last week, but just on the off chance that you don't, uh, let's see if we can get at least the basics of what's going on with 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians implies a what? 1 Corinthians, very good. And you may remember from last week that neither 1 and 2 Corinthians is the first or second letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He wrote a letter to the church at Corinth, and then they responded with some questions. He got a bad report on them, and he responds to both the bad report and to their questions with what we call 1 Corinthians. And so Paul, if you've read 1 Corinthians, is covering a wide variety of topics. He keeps coming back to two themes regularly. One is there's division in their church, and there's a lot of sexual immorality in their church. And it seems like no matter what he talks about, somehow he brings it back to one of those two topics over and over and over again. And 1 Corinthians is a great book. It's a long letter. We get a lot of interesting content out of that letter, some fun topics on divorce and singleness and spiritual gifts and prophecy versus tongues, and of course the famous love chapter is in 1 Corinthians, and you would expect the response from 1 Corinthians to be really good, but it was really bad, and Paul's relationship with the church after that letter got increasingly bad. A group of people come to the church after they've read that letter, and they're a little frustrated with Paul. A group of people come in with the strategic purpose of ruining Paul's ministry, and to a large degree, they succeed at that. Paul finds out about that. He ends up writing, um, well, he ends up going, actually, back to Corinth, and the church publicly and corporately denounces Paul. They have nothing to do with him. Paul experienced rejection there that, that is quite severe, quite heartfelt. He was rejected, not just some aspect of his teaching or some aspect of his ministry, but Paul is a person. You've been at that point where you experience rejection, not just you messed up one thing, somebody doesn't like something about you, but, but this group of people decide they do not like the Paulness of Paul. They don't like who he is, they reject him. He leaves and writes what would be the third letter, it's the in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the third letter, and it's called the severe letter. He writes this letter to the church and he loses sleep over this letter. In fact, he's still a little concerned about how severe. You ever written an email or a letter or had a conversation and what you said was true, but then after the fact, you're not sure, maybe I didn't say that in the kindest way possible. Well, for the Apostle Paul to be worried, he went too far. You can imagine. This is Paul we're talking about, who is pretty matter of fact anyway. And for the matter of fact guy to lose sleep over how matter-of-fact his letter was, we can only imagine how bad his letter truly was. We don't have that letter. It's lost. But we find out later on that uh, Titus went to Corinth after this letter was delivered and possibly even delivered this letter, and he finally catches back up with Paul, and the church has repented. They've come back around. They've restored their hope in the gospel, and for that church, the same thing, restored their hope in the Apostle Paul, and Paul writes 2 Corinthians in response to their repentance. So you can imagine how happy 
Paul is after being in such a dark season of life. He's on the, we could call it an emotional high. It's a joy, it's a comfort is the word he's going to use as he's writing the second letter, what we call the second letter to Corinth, which is actually the what letter? Fourth letter. So first and second Corinthians are really second and fourth. There's a letter that comes before both of them. That's our context. So Paul is happy, but there's still a lot of lingering emotions, lingering uncertainties, and he hasn't gone yet. He's heard of their repentance, and he's on his way to actually meet them, but he writes this letter ahead of time. So we've done the introduction where he said he was an apostle, and he's writing to all the churches in Achaia, but especially the church at Corinth. And now we get into the, that would be the greeting. Now this is the formal opening of the letter. So verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a common way for Paul to start. Either some sort of um, glorification of God, some doxology in some way, or thanksgiving. And he's going to incorporate the thanksgiving actually later in the letter. So this time he's setting it up. Thematically, he's going to praise God according to the theme he's going to talk about in the letter. So he's going to bless the name of the Lord. And so when we bless, technically speaking, um, the word bless in Greek means to say a good word. If you go to a funeral and you hear a eulogy, eulogy, that's, that is this word. The Greek word just spoken in English is eulogy. And it's a combination in Greek of the word good and the word for word. So good word, you speak a good word. So anytime we praise something about God, technically speaking, we are blessing his name. We're speaking a good thing about him. When God blesses us, if God speaks a good word over us, that's quite a different affair. Because if God says something like, let there be light, well, what happens? So if God were to bless you with the live long and prosper, what would happen? You would live long and prosper. It's a guaranteed, creative, powerful statement. We respond. We can't make God anything, but we can praise God for who he is. That's what Paul's going to do here. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. So there's a lot of things Paul could praise. We could praise the omnipotence of God. We could praise his omniscience, his all-knowing, his sovereign will over creation, the glorious way he works out the story of redemption. We see that happen in Ephesians. Actually, there's 14 verses of one sentence of Paul praising God using the same lingo, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And it's a general letter, so it's a general blessing. But in this particular case, God, Paul is going to praise God's name because he is a God of comfort. A God of comfort. Now when we say the word comfort, we can mean a lot of different things. Um, it may be comfort for us that we have a church building that has functioning air conditioning. And for some of you this morning, it may not be comfortable. It may be too cold. And if it's too cold, I feel like we've won, you know, because I'd rather not sweat. It's a comfortable chair, right? We think of comfort in that sense. That's obviously not at all what Paul is talking about when he says the word comfort. The Holy Spirit is called the, the comforter. Um, Jesus gets the same word applied to him in 1 John, the advocate, actually, the one called alongside to help paraclete, if you've ever heard that expression. This is the Greek word, is comforter. So what does Paul mean when he says God is a God of comfort? Basically, comfort requires two pieces. On one side, you're suffering, and then that suffering, in some sense, is alleviated 
then you have been comforted. Now, we can think about that in a lot of ways. You could just be intellectually comforted and in spite of circumstances, or you could be comforted in that those circumstances change. Does that make sense, the difference between the two? So it could be just a spiritual, mental, psychological comfort. It could be a physical comfort, or it could be a long-term, in the end, things work out and we're comforted in that sense. Now, let's lay down this principle at the very beginning, first blank in your outline. Comfort is a guaranteed part of God's long-term plan. God will comfort all people that are His, all of his people through the kingdom of God. In fact, we see this in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember how that starts off? Jesus goes up on the mountain. And he preaches the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a guaranteed part of God's master plan. That doesn't mean you'll experience comfort at every step of the process, but over the whole over the trajectory from A to Z, at Z, guaranteed, comfort is part of God's plan. So if we think about it in those two different ways, we could say long-term, literal comfort, as in literal removal of suffering, literal removal of grief, literal removal of mourning, literal removal of pain, those are guaranteed future parts of God's plan. God is a God of Comfort. You see how Paul praised him. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. This is part of what God is. It's part of what God does. This is guaranteed. Now, for our moment, our, our time in the moment, we might want to be more interested in how does God comfort us now? We'll see this work out in two ways throughout the letter, but just to remind you of what those are. Number one, um, God could give you, and this isn't a blank, this is just giving you a perception of what we mean by comfort. God can give us a supernatural peace in spite of our circumstances. You may be familiar with Philippians, that um, God will give us a peace that surpasses understanding. That's the kind of idea that we're in the moment, and I don't even know why I have peace. I can't connect the dots. I don't know why I have peace, but I do. Well, that's a supernatural peace. That's God coming in and giving us his presence in a way that we didn't have before, if you think about a comforter, many times in the Bible, refers to someone who comes along, you're in mourning, you're weeping, you're upset, and all they do is walk up and sit down and cry with you. Now, why is that comforting to us? It's a built-in response that we have. We want a shoulder to cry on. In fact, for the Jews, if you remember the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, when Jesus shows up, he talks to, to both of the sisters, um, but when the second sister comes out, you know, the, the other group comes with her because they were professional comforters and their role was to follow the grieving around and cry really loud. That's the point. That's their purpose. Now, we kind of have the opposite idea at a funeral. We, we would think a funeral is better if it's not as boisterous, not as boohoo-y, not as tear-filled. But for them, they did that on purpose. They would, they would build it up and make it louder and make it kind of overwhelming which gave them comfort because their grief wasn't isolated. Their pain wasn't isolated. Their suffering wasn't isolated. Well, the main concept of comfort there was presence. Someone would be present with you in your grief, in your comfort. It didn't matter if they said the right thing or had the, the right, any words to offer. Just the fact that they were in the room was comforting. Now think about how we apply that to God. 
How does God comfort us in our grief and our pain and our sorrow in the present moment? Well, the most fundamental way he does that is in the form of presence. He's with us. He's here. He will not leave us or forsake us. God is present, so he can supernaturally give us peace. Or second, he can alleviate the circumstance. Have you ever seen God do a miraculous work of deliverance? It could be a physical ailment. It could be a relationship restored. For Paul, he's writing out of a sense of this relationship being restored. If you look over in chapter 7, this same letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's talking about how excited he was when he finally heard from Titus. Just pick up in verse 5 and see how he says this. For even when we came into Macedonia, which is where he's at when he writes the letter, he was still upset about the church. Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, what is it that Titus brought with him? The news of their repentance. And so in this sense, Paul doesn't mean just comforting in the sense of God's presence, but literally comforting in the sense of God restored Paul by bringing a literal fix to the circumstance. Now, we're not promising that that always happens, but we are promising that God is a God of comfort. This is part of his character. This is part of who he is. This is what Paul was longing for and hoping for, and Paul was not wrong to have this hope in the Lord, that God would comfort him, not just supernaturally give him peace, but even restore the circumstance. So Paul's praising God in his comfort. Now let's look at verse 4. So that was verse 3. So this God of comfort, and just see how many times you see the word comfort come up in the next couple of verses. Who comforts us and all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with, with which we ourselves are comforted. Any important word you pick up in that, that phrase? It's like, you know, if you're learning Greek and you read this passage, this is when you get really excited because you've like, you got to know three words. The, every other word is comfort when you go through here. God is comforting us so that we can comfort you with the comfort God comforted us with when we got comforted. And it's like, wow, comfort, comfort, comfort. Paul's definitely emphasizing the idea of comfort in this scenario, but he's also emphasizing something that's not as exciting. Um, God gives us comfort. How do we define comfort? The two pieces. One, is there some sort of suffering? And two, there's some sort of removal or consolation within or a removal of the suffering. So in other words, you can't be comforted. You can't have B unless you have A. And A in that case is what? It's the suffering. It's assumed. All right? So we share, look at verse 5, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Do you remember the principle we did, laid down last week that we will embody as Christians both the suffering of the crucifixion and the glory of the resurrection? We do both of those. We get to be jars of clay that get broken only to have the light of the glory of the resurrection shine out of them. We do both. This is guaranteed. So the fact that God is a God of comfort means God is going to consistently and regularly allow his children to experience suffering. This is part of that master plan that involved comfort. It also involves suffering. Second point there, God allows suffering in our lives for many reasons. Now we could go on a long list of what those reasons are, 
Two are directly referenced in this text, and so we're going to only look at those two. But see how he's wording this. So we share abundantly in Christ's suffering. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So God had purpose in this suffering, both for Paul and for the church at Corinth. So let me give you the two specific ways we're referencing that God uses suffering in our lives right now. Number one, for our personal growth. Our personal growth. The suffering make you grow as a believer. That's how God designed it. Suffering allows us to grow. In fact, the incarnate Son of God. So we're talking in the flesh. God has always been God. Jesus has always been the second person of the Trinity. But about 2,000 years ago, that second person of the Trinity did something remarkable. He humbled himself, and he took the form of a man, and he walked this earth. He came humbled as a servant, but so humbled, he didn't come just as an adult. How did he come? As a baby. He came conceived in his mother's womb. He didn't just come at birth. He came where life begins. He came at the moment of conception. He grew, and Jesus, the man, though he was God, he certainly suffered. It says he grew in wisdom and in stature. He had to learn. He had to take his first steps. He, he had to grow up. He had to learn obedience. And we're told in Hebrews 5.8 that one of the main ways he became perfected. And we're talking about him ever being sinful. But Jesus in the flesh, Jesus the man, had to grow up, had to learn, had to become perfect in that sense. And one of the chief ways he did that was through suffering. It's exactly how Jesus did it. Well, think about that. Jesus is our model. Jesus is our example. Jesus is who we are supposed to imitate. In fact, the very word Christian was originally derogatory to mean y'all are just imitating Christ, you little Christ-like people. And Christianity hears that and says, oh, that's good. That works. That's exactly what we're trying to do. But how did Jesus grow? How did Jesus mature? And he didn't even have sin to deal with, and he's still growing and maturing. He did it through suffering. God is going to use suffering in your life. Have you ever prayed for patience? That your patience would grow? You know what you were asking for. When you prayed for God to make your patience longer, you were praying, you were technically asking God to give you a little more suffering this week. That's how he does it. He's going to grow us through suffering. But secondly, our suffering is part of our personal mission in the kingdom. You see how it is for Paul, verse 6? If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. How does Paul view his suffering? He views his suffering as a tool for his gospel witness. In the same way that we can look to Jesus and, and have a sense of comfort because he knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like. We, we can relate to him in that way, or better, he can relate to us in that way. Any suffering, any pain, anything that goes wrong in life for us gives us a unique ability to do ministry and mission with those around us. 
It allows us to speak into other people's lives. It allows us to comfort the afflicted, especially if we've been afflicted in the way that person has been afflicted. Has God used you in that way? Or has God used someone else? In that way, they were able to put their arm around your shoulder when you were suffering grief because they shared that grief. That they were able to coach you along a painful scenario because they've been in a very similarly, similarly painful scenario. This is what God does. This is part of God's plan. We could come up with a lot more reasons God allows us to suffer, but that's two very important ones, both in this text. God is a God of comfort, which means he's also a God of suffering. And he's also a God who removes and relieves and appeases that very suffering. All right, next third blank in your outline. Let's see this. The Apostle Paul praised God in spite of and because of his suffering. How do you start this paragraph off? What's his key word there? Blessed be God. Who's a God of comfort, yes but who let us suffer so that we could comfort you. Blessed be that God. Blessed be that God, not just in spite of, but actually because of this suffering that we have endured. So the Apostle Paul's blessing God because of his suffering. We like to praise God when things are good. But Paul is praising God in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the pain, because of the fruit he knows that this suffering will produce. Now let's read the last verse here. We're going to stop at verse 7. Our hope for you is unshaken. Now when we think about hope, the biblical model of hope is usually this idea of looking forward and having confidence in the conclusion that's coming. So maybe you could think of hope as confidence in the conclusion. You know where this is headed. You know where this path is going. And so in spite of all of Paul's agony with this church at Corinth, in spite of their rejection of him, in spite of the division, in spite of the sin still lingering in the church, he says, our hope for you is unshaken. There's still an absolute confidence in where this is going, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our, com- our comfort. Paul, consistently in his ministry, has his eyes set on the coming glory. No matter how bad things get, And he's going to talk about that next week in the next paragraph when we look at Paul's kind of the bottom of his emotional bucket, the the lowest point that we have recorded of where he despaired of life. Even in that moment, Paul had his eyes set, fixed on a glory that was going to come, which made him unshakable. Not just unshaken, but unshakable. Because he he knew that the Glory that was to be revealed, this comes from Romans 8, 18, made all the sufferings of right now not even show up on the radar. There's no scale that allows our suffering to even register if the future glory gets compared. Can you imagine that? Take your greatest pain, the greatest sorrow, the greatest suffering you've ever experienced. Probably doesn't take you long to think of what that is. Paul's saying there's a day. He he could see it fixed in his mind that the glory is going to be so good that not not only are you going to say that it was worth it when you get to the other side, you're going to say, well, it wasn't really that big a deal. Can you even fathom that? You think about how painful some things can be? 
the loss of a child, the death of a loved one, the the pain of a physical illness, the, the pain of a relationship utterly destroyed beyond repair, looking in the future and saying, a day is coming where I'm going to say, man, compared to the glory that has come, that was, that was nothing. It's momentary, light affliction, Paul will say later in this letter. That is the glory that is to come. So if, I don't think we filled in the blank. No suffering can outshine the glory that is coming from the kingdom of heaven. No suffering can outshine the glory that is coming from the kingdom of heaven. So we said there were two ways God could give us a supernatural peace. He could comfort us that way. He could comfort us by changing the circumstances. But there's a third one that's consistently found in the New Testament. God comforts us with that eternal perspective. If you know where we are headed, if you can set your eyes on the glory that is to be revealed. There's a comfort that comes in that that cannot be found in anything else. God is going to comfort us. This is part of his plan. Now, I want to point out, Paul says a lot of we in this passage. Did you notice that? A lot of letters Paul writes. There's a lot of eyes. I received the grace of God. I was called to such and such. But look at verse 5, or into verse 4. We ourselves... We're comforted by that comfort, or we share abundantly. Verse 6, if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort. Our hope in you is unshaken, for we know that you share. What's going on with that? So Paul's not writing by himself, right? Paul has been building for years now at this point in his ministry. He's going to continue for the rest of his ministry. He's been doing exactly what he'll ultimately tell Titus to do in Crete. And we studied Titus earlier. Paul has trained up godly men to do this work, to be examples of that comfort, to be examples of sufferers who are comforted, examples of sufferers who can comfort everywhere he goes. Every church he plants, he equips, trains, commissions, ordains, lays hands on, elders who will shepherd the flock of God. Now we have the opportunity this morning to lay hands on, to ordain commission, if you will, on three new elders in our church. Scott, would you go ahead and move those chairs down here? I'm going to get um, all three of y'all to come up. I'm going to offer a charge to James Knight, Rob Roy, and Jacob Daniel this morning. Ask them to come forward. So just to recount this process a little bit, we asked for nominations from you um, earlier this year, I think over the month of January or February, I've forgotten now, um, but you nominated um, these three men, and we're told in Timothy by Paul, he says, don't be hasty um, to lay hands on people, and we weren't, you can tell it's May, um, we weren't hasty at all, uh, but we met with these men, and we've questioned them, and I personally no, all three. I'm going to ask. It doesn't matter about the order. Y'all take a seat right here in front. So just so everyone knows, on your right, this side, your right, James Knight. James Knight has been in my life for over a decade now. It's actually been quite a while. I, I love James Knight, guys. God has gifted this man in a large number of ways. He's got a story for anything you can think of that's going to have a religious anecdotal value to it. 
I'm, I challenge you to come up with something he can't give you a story about. And I see if he can't apply the gospel to it and through it in your life. He's generous. He is a servant. Um, I've been touched by James's life a number of times throughout my life. It's, it's a blessing to me. I would have gladly picked him on my own, but I didn't have to. Y'all did that. Y'all nominated James, and I saw that nomination was immediately excited to see his name nominated. I, I'm so excited. We've met with James. We've met with all of them and affirmed them. And then in the middle here, you've got Jacob Daniel, the most socially outgoing of the three. You've probably met him. Um, I've also been thoroughly impressed with Jacob. Jacob, every time we talk, has an attitude for disciple-making, an attitude for how we can do it better. How can we reach our community better? How can we have a better presence? How can we do disciple-making better? How can we do this flow, the systems better? I love his mind. I love his heart. I love what God is doing with him. I love the way he likes to challenge the status quo. No question whatsoever when Jacob's name came up. I saw Jacob as an excellent candidate for the position of elder. I'm really excited that you nominated him. And then we have Rob with two Bs, Roy, on your left, and uh, Rob is, well, I remember my very first meeting with Rob, um, mostly because he was wearing a, a t-shirt that had um, superheroes on it, which immediately meant, meant I knew I was going to like him. Um, Rob has a passion for the gospel, a passion for theology. He understands grace, and I know that he knows the gospel and has personally felt the gospel and, and knows the, the comfort that comes from the gospel, and he has creative skills, servant's heart. He's teachable, but he is a teacher. All three of these men are, and I'm very excited to have them um, as the new elders that you have nominated and our elder body has affirmed, and we present them this morning as three new elders for our church. And we're going to have a moment where we can lay hands on them. And So this is a biblical process that we see consistently in the New Testament the first time it's expressly explained is when um, the apostles have those seven men gathered together for the church to um, do the ministry to the widows. They come before the apostles, they're affirmed, and they lay their hands on them and commission them. We see that happen again when the church at Antioch commissions their first missionary team, which included Paul and Barnabas. If you know that story, they laid hands on them, they prayed and commissioned them for the work of ministry. We see Timothy reference it. Several times Paul speaking to him, reminding him of that time where the apostles laid their hands on them, commissioning them in the grace of God to do a specific ministry. So this morning we're going to lay our hands in this biblical pattern on James, Jacob, and Rob and commission them to the work of elder, which is to oversee and shepherd the flock of God that gathers at Church of the Square. So I'm going to ask every ordained, um, either active or inactive, um, a man in our church, so our, all of our current elders, James and Donna, I ask you to participate as well, to come up here um, and just pray over each of these men, and we'll just go in order, pray over James and then Jacob and then Rob, and I ask the congregation, this will take a few moments, and I ask you not to treat this as a spectator sport where you're just sitting here watching some boring thing take place, that's not what's happening. A gospel work is happening this morning, where we as a church are commissioning laying on hands, doing a biblical work over these three men. I ask you to pray silently where you are. Pray for their ministry, pray for their work. And I'm going to close this, or close this part of the ceremony in prayer um, after everyone comes through, and then we will transition into the Lord's Supper. So I ask everyone to, to pray and, 
if you would lay hands on these men and pray for them.